Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. I'd like to thank Natalie Dillon for introducing me to today's guest, Tyler Hanley, co-founder and CEO of Inkbox, the tattoos for now. Inkbox sells temporary tattoos that last one to two weeks and fade as your skin naturally regenerates. We talk about the state of the tattoo market, both temporary and permanent, opportunity he saw at the early stages, which I thought was fascinating, how he was able to fundraise and scale, and I'll be honest, before this conversation, I knew nothing about the tattoo market, so this was certainly an eye-opener for me and really an insightful conversation. So without further ado, here's Tyler. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm uh, I'm doing well, all things considered. That's good. I'm 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 glad you're doing well and safe. Let's start at the beginning. What initially attracted you to entrepreneurship? Yeah, I kind of saw myself in entrepreneurs. Uh, I never dreamed of running my own business or having a startup or being an entrepreneur. Uh, I kind of wanted to be an intellectual or a professor, write books things like that. And I was working at the BBC uh, when I used to live in the UK. And while I was there, I ended up helping out with this incubator they had um, called BBC, BBC Labs. And just started meeting a lot of the founders. And it was at that time of my life, uh, you know, early 20s, that I was looking to just figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I just saw a lot of myself in them. They were uh, driven, uh, curious, competitive, uh, and well-rounded, I would say, you know, I, I'd always considered myself a, a Renaissance man. Like it just, I kind of knew a little about a lot. Uh, and I felt like the founders that I was talking to were very similar in that respect. Um, and just seemed like something I could do. Um, I'm a very creative person as well. And I love building and, and, and creating things and figured that, I could build and create a company. So when I moved back to Canada, I had this idea for uh, a temporary tattoo that didn't exist yet. You know, something that was longer lasting and looked a lot more realistic than the temporary tattoos you had as a kid. Something a lot closer to a permanent tattoo, but obviously without the permanence because the particular design I wanted at the time was uh, something I knew would age me, you know, in, in 10 years. I didn't want to be that guy with with this particular tattoo. And I guess now I actually do have some tattoos that in like 10 years, I'll probably be like, huh, but whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was kind of like the, the inspiration for the product, which uh, I could get into it in more detail. When I think about tattoos, I think about the temporary side, I think about you know, little kids getting these, you know, temporary tattoos. And then I think of real tattoos, which is obviously for, you know, an older demographic. How are you even just thinking about target audience? Yeah, that's actually really challenging with inkboxes. What is our target market? Especially when you're creating a new market that hasn't existed. I mean, no one has the technology we do. And um, I mean, we are really leaning into this category that we're creating. And there's obviously market comparables, but there's nothing exact. So when uh, investors ask me about like, what's your TAM 
or your Sam or what have you. I, I never really had an answer. Um, and that actually turned some early investors off. Like I, they just couldn't understand the market size and that's fair because it, it's really tough. So you got to look at like comparables and look at macro trends and, and what macro trends does a company like Inkbox play into. And for us, that's uh, really around uh, bold identity statements. So uh, if you look at the rise in, in hair coloring, for example, it was this kind of nascent market for, for many years. And then like a decade ago, it started to, to pick up and it's been growing at, I forget the exact rate, but I think about a, a, a 10% uh, compound annual growth rate the past couple years um, and more specifically novelty hair color which is growing at a 20% CAGR and that's like blue pink red hair we noticed that a lot of our customers were had predisposition to having boldly colored hair as well um, and so that felt like a good market comp for us that's kind of what we'll compare it to roughly speaking and then say but here's this 50 billion dollar global tattoo market and we kind of sit in the middle between the two and over time you could just see how, you know, if we get it right, you know, it's a much, much more consumable version of a tattoo, right? Where you're not getting it once or twice or three times, but you can get it 10 times, 20 times, 30 times. And realistically, in the long term, Inkbox should be larger than the permanent market if everything goes right. Uh, but, you know, that'll obviously take time. So, yeah, it's always been a challenge for us to, to talk through, through market sizing. Um, but just through using analogies, playing into macro trends, uh, and then looking at market comparables, they can get a pretty good understanding of, of where the, the market could go for us. Whenever you're, it's a, blue, a, a bit of a blue ocean uh, market where you're actually developing the market, it's really hard to calculate. I had on um, Mike Duda, who was an early investor in Peloton, and he was like, He's like, to be honest, like, how do you even think about the market for Peloton? You know, it's uh, like he he was very against TAM. He thinks that TAM is one of the most overrated metrics um, when investing. And then I've had, had other investors on that kind of the market slide of the deck. That's that's to them the most important. I imagine that has to do has to something to do with how much risk investors are willing to take. Right. Because I think you really and how much conviction they have around something going in a certain direction. I think a lot of our early investors had a lot of conviction around the fact that this was going to be a thing, right? And I think if you talk to Mike Duda, I imagine he says something similar that just had this deep conviction that all the trends are pointing in the right direction for Peloton. I'm actually sitting here looking at my Peloton that's beside me in the room. So uh, that worked. Um, and I think the less, the more risk averse uh, investors, it, it, the market slide is, I think, uh, an easy, it's easy. I mean, if you could, it's easy to see the market size if it's a known industry, um, and it's easy to see how big the company could be um, in that in that case, and it becomes a much safer investment because of that, right? Um, but I guess, yeah, maybe you run the risk of not having as as much outlier success in that case. So different 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 uh, flavors for different types of investors with the market sizing. I'd say. No, absolutely. And it's funny because I'm also sitting in a room with my Peloton right behind oh, me. Oh God. Are we those people? Are we? <laughs> I guess we're those people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't brag about it. I've never posted on social about it. This is the first time it's been mentioned publicly. Oh, I haven't. I haven't. Yeah. I, I haven't either. We actually recently got it. It was funny. I had a conversation with um, one investor. We actually scrapped it. For, I actually took it out in editing, but we had like a 15 minute conversation just about Peloton. It didn't make the cut, but it's definitely like a hot topic on like a side note. So um, no, and 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 it totally makes sense in terms of what what your market and what I think is so interesting about that is 
you know, as I, I would think as VCs or investors, they're investing in companies that really are creating new markets, right? That's a lot of the time what they look for. So, so when you're thinking about these new markets, at the same time, when they want to see, it's a little bit of a catch-22 in some ways because they want to see, you know, what the market size could be and the potential. But if it's a new, you know, market that doesn't exist for, it's hard to really, you know, quantify that, right? So how did you measure, though, that this was an actual real need and you were solving a problem? Yeah, I think a lot of that when you're starting out comes from the gut. Um, all the ideas I have for businesses, I always have ideas and they're always something that I want in my life. Um, I'm almost kind of like the inventor mindset where I see something that's not done well enough and I'm like, I want to do this in a different or better way, or this doesn't even exist. And I think this should exist. And so Inkbox is born out of that desire, right? It was a really innate desire. And I think being a, a, a person who's uh, well enough read, well-versed uh, in, in society and culture that, um, you know, your, your, your brain is like a, you know, a piece of software that computes on all the pro the, the information that's stored within it. Right. And if you have all that information stored, like the idea you come up with is built on something real, right. That probably should exist within society. Um, if it's a good idea. <laughs> um, and so early on, um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of conviction in it, of course. Um, but that's still not enough. Um, I went out and just asked a bunch of friends, um, you know, not the kind, there's, there's different types of friends. Friends will be like, oh, that's a, that's a great idea, Tyler. <laughs> the, uh, I call them the American Idol friends who will, you know, like, <laughs> they'll be like, oh yeah, you're a great singer. Go try out for American Idol. And they get just like, Simon Cowell just yells at them. Like, what are you doing with your life? <laughs> that's not the kind of friend you go to. You go to the friend who will just be <laughs> straight up with you. Um, so I went to a couple of my other friends who um, could be straight up with me and, you know, they weren't actually in the market for this, but they were like, I, I really think that people would like this. And um, so, yeah, we ended up creating an Instagram account um, after that. It's kind of like a step function, right? Like you talk to your, your, yourself, your inner gut first, you sit on it for a while, you come back to it a couple of weeks later, does it still feel good? Then you talk to some friends, see what they say, and then you put it out there publicly, but uh, light touch first. So um, we didn't know what we were doing. So, you know, we, if, if I were doing this again, I'd probably approach it in a different way, but we, uh, we just set up an Instagram account, started posting some content and yeah, people just, you know, ha with hashtags, uh, they actually worked to get people to follow your page back in the day on Instagram. This was 2015 and yeah, people followed us and were commenting and they liked the idea of it. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how we built our initial audience and fan base was just Instagram. Um, and that gave us enough conviction to step into the next uh, stage of the business, which was to run a Kickstarter campaign, which proved, uh, you know, even more thoroughly that this, there was demand for this. And then we raised some capital and then got into performance marketing and you know, all the traditional D2C, B2C uh, avenues of growth and validation. So uh, what I really liked about your process, and this is something as well, we talk about on the show a lot, but you really were, were de-risking in that you had these kind of multiple stages where you're like, all right, let's just post this out kind of into the world on Instagram right? And see if we get responses to it. Then if we do, and there's some traction that this might be something that, that we might like, then we actually go and raise some money for it via a Kickstarter campaign, which that's that's amazing. And uh, then you develop the product yourself instead of just going and, you know, building the product itself to, and then trying to just assess if there's a real need, right? Did you, did you start actually building out the, you actually started making the tattoos and building out the, the actual product? Was that after the, the Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, we've been through several product innovations 
kind of in tandem with with like that step function of validation. Um, our product was quite expensive to develop, at least the current iteration of it. Um, and the previous iteration, less expensive, but still, you know, uh, I wouldn't say it was was trivial. Uh, so, yeah, in terms of uh, kind of product development, um, what's that Paul Graham quote? If you if you didn't if you weren't embarrassed by the first version of your product, you've launched too too late. Um, we kind of always had that mandate in mind with, with our product. Um, once you get to a later stage, of course, uh, you know we're five years in. Like we're not going to launch a, a shitty product now. <laughs> Uh, that we were proud of. But before it was, what can we, you know, what's the MVP? It was straight up, like, what's the minimum viable version of this product we can get out there that works well enough that can validate that consumers would like this, you know? Um, so the first version of our product was um, literally this fruit. The, the, the core uh, ingredient in our product comes from a plant that grows in the jungles of Panama and across Central America. And uh, this this plant extract, we, we're just initially we went down to Panama and we got it from a fruit. Like we literally pulp a fruit, put it in a bottle, send you some stickers that had uh, designs cut in them, and you'd fill in the negative space. It was a pretty cumbersome process, took a while to apply, pretty messy, had to be frozen in the refrigerator. It just wasn't a very good consumer product, but it worked well enough to prove that people wanted this and that people were willing to buy this. Um, and from there, um, we we knew we needed a a, a, a better consumer version of the product, one that obviously didn't need to be refrigerated and had a longer shelf life and could be much, uh, much easier applied. And so we did a bunch of research and figured out kind of roughly how we could do it. And at that stage, we launched a Kickstarter with a, with a really, really rough prototype. And I mean, rough, uh, it worked, but barely. <laughs> um, and yeah, we raised uh, 275,000 on Kickstarter. And then we had to be like, okay, how do we manufacture this at scale? Um, we initially set out to raise 20,000 and uh, we're going to make them by hand. Um, we were, and we're going to use the proceeds to figure out how to manufacture that scale and give us some time. But 275 meant we had to manufacture 15,000 tattoos within a couple of months. So we had to figure out how to do that. Um, and so uh, for us, it was looking at uh, comparable products, roughly speaking, and what kind of companies manufactured them. And so for us, it was Band-Aids. We looked at Band-Aids and like, who makes Band-Aids? We're like, okay, well, 3M. And so just went through our networks and, and found some people at 3M. And they were just like, well, we can't help you, but here's someone who can. And then they introduced that person. That person's like, well, I can't really help you, but here's someone who can. And then we kind of just went through this long line of people to find the right uh, manufacturer for, for our, our product. And even then, we had to convince them because we were so small and they we were working with big medical um, medical supply companies that, that they should work with us because there was huge potential here. So not only did we have to raise money from investors and convince them to, to invest in our product, but we had to convince the manufacturers to invest their resources to, to, to create this product for us. And if, if we hadn't done that, um, we would have been dead in the water. You raised like a really good point because you know this is a new product in a, in, a, in a new category. And when you have a new product, new category, you have to think about your supply chain, not just, you know, you couldn't just look at like the supply chain of like uh, how to make tattoos or, or temporary tattoos. Rather, you had to go other other routes and look at other verticals on how they, so you picked, for example, Band-Aids, which totally makes sense. Yeah, it's almost like reverse engineering how to manufacture what you're doing. Exactly. After that kind of 275,000, is that when you started to do performance marketing? Not right after, but soon enough after. So we raised that money and then, you know, our challenge, 
at the beginning for everything was really that we didn't, we weren't experienced. And when you, and we didn't come from any sort of, we didn't go to like a good school. Um, we didn't know anyone that was successful. Uh, we don't come up from a family that has a lot of money. So it was kind of like, we didn't really know where to go for capital or expertise. Um, we kind of just had to figure it out as we went. And um, raising capital was, was challenging. We didn't have access to capital. That's why we did a Kickstarter, right? Was to, to raise capital. But I had one contact uh, in the venture industry at that time. And actually that was the, but one guy pretty much um, was the ste stepping off point for all of the, the, the investors and um, people in, in, in venture that I know. And it was through him that uh, I, I raised that first round of financing after the, the Kickstarter. I used that as leverage essentially like, Hey, like, you know, there was 8,000 backers here. We also did with the same amount we did on Kickstarter in sales on our previous version of the product um, at the same time. So it was like, Hey, here's all the validation. Like, let's raise the seed. Um, yeah. So we raised the seed and then it was after that um, we, we finally started on the, the performance marketing track. Uh, how do you grow this thing? Well, that was, especially in 2015, 2016 was the, the golden era of, of <laughs> growing off the back of Facebook. And I mean, we were doing, we were still small, so we weren't really taking advantage of it. Like I think we could have and, Kind of glad we did because the product at that point in time wasn't um, wasn't good enough to, to really scale large with. So that makes sense. And I, I I'm just curious in terms of those like eight thousand backers of Kickstarter, what were some of the reasons why they wanted your product? Were they folks that eventually wanted to to have a real tat a permanent tattoo, but wanted to to first kind of do a test with Inbox, or like just what are what are some of the reasons why someone would actually purchase your product? Yeah, I mean, they're the, I guess the same reasons that people wear the product today. It shifted a little bit, um, but what you said is is still one of the main points. There's a lot of, especially when it's your first tattoo, and or maybe your first larger tattoo. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of. It, it takes a lot of mental bandwidth and a lot of thought and a lot of hesitancy. Like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm gonna have this forever on my body. Is this something I want to commit to? How am I gonna feel with this on? How am I gonna look with this on? Um, and what's interesting about Inkbox is that it's like a temporary tattoo. You don't get that feeling with a temporary tattoo because it doesn't, first of all, it doesn't really look real, but you can remove it at any time. Um, an Inkbox tattoo, because it actually changes the color of your skin uh, and it just exfoliates away naturally in one to two weeks, like it's there for that amount of time. So there's that moment where you're like, when you take it off and you see it develop, you're like, fuck, like I either like this or I don't. And there's that like kind of heart dropping moment. Like, is this... I'm stuck with this for a certain amount of time. So it's a lot closer to the feeling of an actual uh, permanent tattoo. Um, so there's definitely a lot of hesitancy there. A lot of consumers are looking to test a tattoo before getting one from real for real. And it's not even that literal. A lot of the time it's just they're curious about how they'd feel with one. Um, so that was a lot of the initial uh, uh, use case around Inkbox. Um, and then over time, it's, it's shifted a little bit more towards uh, the self-expression angle. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's really, it's, it's, it's about, it's an identity statement always to some extent, either to yourself or to others about yourself usually, uh, or a group you're part of or something. Uh, it's about self-expression, it's fun, and it's about creativity. Um, those things are kind of like the base of why people use the product. Um, and then more specifically, uh, there's, there's inter interesting use cases around um, mental health, uh, tattoos are very powerful, um, because they do change the color of your skin. 
Um, and so a lot of customers use it for reminding them to breathe or to be strong or to get over a tough time, to remember someone or to remember something, um, to motivate them through something. There's a lot of like, um, I guess, mental health uh, angles to, to the use case behind Inkbox. Uh, and then I think beyond that, it's, it's a cosmetic. Um, it just, it gives you confidence. It makes you look cool. Um, it says something about you. It's a bold way to, uh, to express yourself. And I don't think you saw a lot of that uh, the, on Kickstarter. I think it was more like the test case. And it was around the novelty of the idea. Like, this is cool. Like, um, I mean, we still sell off the base, the back of it being a novelty to some extent. Um, but now there's, especially since we're, you know, we've led with brand now, we lean into the designs and the, the meaning behind them. Um, there's a lot more about like, this means something to me. I want to show it off to the world. Um, and this is who I am right now. And you know, it doesn't have to be me forever. Sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, 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 no. It actually reminds me of a conversation and this is a different conversation, but, um, but I think it's, it's interesting because we talk, we talk quite a bit, for example, about apparel and about, especially like on the Gen Z, uh, on, on the Gen Z side and, uh, not to group Gen Z and all in one bucket, but, uh, the effects of, of Instagram and you wanting to wear a different piece of clothing, um, each time on Instagram, it almost seems like in some ways, like towards a one part of your audience that maybe, you know, having a different tattoo, showing a different ex uh, self-expression, uh, and being able to, you know, have different tattoos later on, that it's not permanent, that you could actually, you know, express yourself in a, in a different way each time. Yeah, very much so. And one thing we're going to lean into a lot in the future, uh, and it's really core of the company as well is, is the fact that there's very little waste. It's a really bold way to express yourself without the waste. You know, we're not producing cotton shirts that require so much, so much water and waste, um, and then get recycled so quickly, um, or just thrown away. Um, you know, these, we just change the color of your skin. It's like you putting a bandaid on and then it changes your skin's color. Um, and then your skin exfoliates, and, you know, turns to dust, so to speak. So the waste is minimal. Um, and you get that self-expression. So, yeah. No, that's cool. That's cool. It's, it's, it's interesting seeing like the parallels from like different from how consumers behave, which, with uh with you know wanting to wear different styles or or different clothing but also in parallel with with these tattoos what were some other tough questions from investors or some some speed bumps along the way yeah oh um i mean initially it was a lot about the team like it was my brother and i and like what had we done <laughs> so there's a lot of questions around just like our sophistication and uh we got called scrappy a lot which i didn't know if it was a compliment or uh, an insult, or, but uh, it was almost like a backhanded compliment. Scrappy means like you're unsophisticated, but you work hard. So <laughs> I guess that was good enough um, to raise to raise money off of. But a lot around the team early on, which which makes sense, frankly, uh, the market size. Um, I think they intuitively and instinctively understood the value of the product itself. But then just how does this grow was always one of the big questions initially as well. Um, you know, how do you make this a billion dollar company? Um, and frankly, we didn't really have the answer back then. Um, it was just like, we'll figure it out. You just got to believe that we're the team to do it. Um, so all those questions kind of came in parallel. As we progress and, you know, went, went, went and raised a Series A, uh, the questions obviously changed. Um, questions became more about the, the, the whole team, obviously, and not just us. Um, and at the Series A level, it, it really starts to, to get more into, okay, like, how do you really how do you put fuel on the fire and, and how do you get to this, get this to 
30, $40 million in revenue within the next two years. Um, a lot, a lot about the growth channels, the unit economics. Um, and so, and then repeats. I think those are the, the two biggest things in the series A were unit economics and repeats. Um, and I imagine I haven't raised a B, but I imagine when I go to raise a B, um, you know, repeats and, and, and the growth rate will be the two biggest ones because we've really solved for the experience and the validation, obviously, at this point. There's been so many investors that I've had on the show and they say, well, what are some qualities in the founders that you're most interested in? Scrappy is one of the first words that comes out of their mouths. It's good. I wasn't alone. <laughs> I wanted to also talk as well about like, there's also like a marketplace side to your product as well, right? In terms of the artists. Um, would love to kind of dive in where you, when you thought about that opportunity and as well, um, like marketplace, was that from the very beginning or is that something more, more recent and just how you, how you think about ink boxes as a whole in terms of different monetization strategies? Yeah, I think this kind of ties into a larger trend. Actually, I think I'd say that, um, investors are, are they're pretty good pattern matchers and recognizers like they see what other companies do they see what's going on in the industry and they'll try to match that to what you're doing and i think we're really unique and, and that hasn't always worked for us and and, and one of the ways uh, that that's come to fruition is through this idea of the marketplace um we pitched it early on in the business that there's there's all these artists i mean there's there's like i don't know how many tattoo artists there are in the world there's like 30 to forty thousand shops in the u.s so it's probably like just over a hundred thousand tattoo artists in the U S um, and they're promoting their work on, on Instagram. You know, it's all, they're designing a lot of them like on their iPad pro now and it's like digital. So they have this artwork sitting around. Right. And so it makes sense that like we want that artwork and then that the artist would promote it and it would drive volume. And then we'd match them one-to-one and get tattoos. And um, it just, we've always kind of pitched that, but, we, we tried it early on and it didn't really move the needle a lot, to be honest. I think partially because our product wasn't as good as it was up until like four or five months ago. Um, and it just, the, the art wasn't really there. We weren't getting the types of artists and the scale of artists that we wanted. Um, and we were looking at like, okay, how much organic traffic are these, uh, these artists driving to the site? And it just, it really wasn't enough to validate it as a growth channel at that point. Uh, and that was just a one-to-many style marketplace, right? Where we were just encouraging artists to share and promote. It didn't really do a lot. And we kind of raised off the back of the marketplace and kind of felt bad because we didn't really do it. It didn't really work, right? And we felt kind of almost, I wouldn't say uh, forced into it, but um, coerced by market forces into trying to build a marketplace when in reality, we should actually be more like a fashion brand. I mean, we're selling an identity product to consumers. and I mean, that product is, they, they just want to see the designs. They don't, like, we've realized that our, our, a lot of our customers don't really care about the artist, so to speak. They care about the art. And so as long as we're showing them the right designs, like, they're happy. Um, so in reality, instead of being more like a marketplace, we should be more like a fashion brand to the consumers. But on the back end, I mean, we are actually still building a marketplace. We're just doing it naturally in service of being a more traditional e-commerce company. And by that, I mean, our products are designed by artists. And so we have to have a community of artists who design our products. Like they're, that's how we, that's how we merchandise. Like that's like, instead of having a merchandiser um, who buys, you know, uh, clothes from suppliers, we have 
an artist community manager who sources designs from our community of artists. Um, and so we are still building this marketplace and we're finally seeing it really pick up. Now we're seeing our organics increase off the back of tattoo artists whose shops happen to be closed right now. So they're really in the mood to promote, um, promoting their collections with Inkbox. Uh, we have this program called Supporting Tattoo Artists um, where um, we're giving a full proceeds of, of uh, the, the profit off design sold to the artists themselves. Um, for the first couple months of them being on the platform uh, to support them while their shops are closed. And that's really encouraged a lot of artists to sign up. A lot of the world's actually biggest tattooers have signed up, which is pretty awesome for us. Gives us a lot of validation um, and, and finally enables us to prove that artists promoting the work, especially at a certain size, can really drive uh, organic network effects, which we've, we're seeing. So yeah, I think to summarize, like, we're building a marketplace still, but it's in service of being a more traditional e-commerce company. Um, and we're not doing that. Uh, that's not like first and foremost, you know? Um, and as it picks up, we'll invest more resources into it. Um, but until that happens, uh, I guess we don't really need to. Do artists kind of apply to be part of, as an artist of Inkbox? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, artists sign up, we accept the ones whose art we think is, um, let's say worthy is not the right word, but I would say even part of the brand, I mean, I think that it's, it's, it's broad. Um, I think we just look for a certain level of skill. Um, it has to, has, there's definitely a threshold of, of quality that it must meet. Um, but beyond that, the subject matter, you know, outside of it being racist, sexist, or homophobic or anything like that, um, or violent, like, it's good. Like, you know, we'll, 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 we'll accept it because we know there's a lot of different disparate communities who would be interested in pretty obscure things. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we have about, I don't even know how many artists, about 800 artists on the platform now who design tattoos for Inkbox, uh, a mix of tattoo artists and illustrators, graphic designers, uh, pen and ink artists. Uh, yeah, there's a, a ton of different mediums, but, um, pretty much all revolve around putting ink to paper or ink to screen in some way. That's awesome. I know that you mentioned before on our first call that you did a rebrand semi-recently and how you were in the beginning trying to be a tech company and didn't have deep brand guidance. And then you kind of pivoted in terms of what your brand was. I just wanted to kind of recap that conversation and just how you how you thought about the brand of, of uh, Inkbox as well. Yeah, so it's been an interesting journey for us. When we, we launched, it was very product driven. You know, we, we invented this product. We built a lot of technical, technical expertise around developing this, this core product of ours, right? Um, it's not like a, a clothing brand or uh, like a cosmetic brand where there's just third-party suppliers, you know, contract manufacturers who know how to do this. And the innovation re largely rests on it being designed in a different way or, or branded in, in a different way, you know, selling a different emotional uh, reason to purchase this product. Uh, Inkbox truly, I mean, is it's, it's differentiated on the core physical product, right? Um, so when we started, there was a lot of focus on that. When we raised our early rounds of investment, there was a lot of focus on that. When we were selling it initially, there was a lot of focus on the product. Um, and so when we developed a brand, we really developed a brand that spoke to the product, but really not its emotional use cases, more of its functional use cases, if that makes sense. And um, the fact that we were selling at the time, both to consumers and investors, when we developed the brand, I think a mistake we made early on was we we leaned a little in, too much into making it feel like a tech company 
and not enough like, like a consumer goods company. And so the brand we developed felt a little um, high tech because we thought our product was high tech, which it was, but consumers don't really, they didn't really give a shit, right? They just wanted the emotional, <laughs> the emotional use of the product to, to, to be sold to them, not the, not the, 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 the functional as much. So um, we ended up rebranding uh, what was it? about a year ago now. And uh, yeah, that rebrand, I mean, we worked again, when we first did our first version of the brand, you read stories about like Nike swoosh was designed for $3,000 by some random graphic junior graphic designer who then was given shares in Nike and became a millionaire. Like, cool. Um, but you get what you pay for most of the time. I think that's, 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 that's an interesting story because it's not the norm. <laughs> the norm is like, if you only spend $10,000 on your brand, you're not really getting much of a brand. Um, you're getting, I don't know, like a logo and a color palette. And that's really what we got initially. Um, and so we, we went back to the drawing board and, and thought a lot more deeply about the brand, what it meant to consumers, how we fit within society writ large, how we fit into these macro trends, how we could speak to them. Um, so we went really, really deep and built the rebrand from the ground up. Um, and then lastly came the actual aesthetic elements of it. So the logo, the palette, the typography, um, and it's not even done. I mean, we launched it a year ago, but like we're still iterating on it and it's, uh, we built a system that's ever evolving. And, and I think it speaks a lot more to, uh, yeah, who we want to be going forward and, and speaking to those emotional reasons consumers would wearing box rather than the functional. So. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, just how you were thinking about it in terms of functional versus uh, the emotional side and being more of a of a fashion brand, a statement, rather than a primarily a technology company. I want to talk about as well as your product. I know that you made like a $2.5 million investment to release a new product, but talk to me a little bit about why that was so so important to do. Yeah, so... Um... You know, I mentioned step function a couple of times, like we've been constantly developing a, a better product. And uh, frankly, the, the, the first product we developed that we were selling up until November of this of, of 2019 was a version that largely was created by myself and my brother. Like we, without a lot of scientific or technical expertise, uh, we had some consultants um, and we kind of just figured it out ourselves. And uh, which is, you know, all good and dandy, but um, it just wasn't a really great product. It was it was good enough to prove market validation, but not to scale with. And so when we raised our Series A, uh, one of the the premises we raised on was that we were going to use a decent amount of these proceeds to develop the scalable version of this product, the one that would be uh, just much more consumer friendly. The use the the, the, the issues with our, our our previous product were that uh, it was just very cumbersome to apply. And it had a lot of steps to application. And if you screw one up, you screwed up the application process. Um, and so a lot of people screwed up the application process, made a lot of refunds, a lot of consumer complaints. Um, and even if they got it right, it was just like the mental bandwidth of going through all these steps. Like it just, it really hurt our repeats as well. And we knew that it just wasn't the right product to, to move with. And beyond that, I think one of the most important parts was that it was, I wouldn't say it was expensive, but we knew we could probably create a product that was a lot more uh, cost effective for us. And it didn't enable the types of styles of art that we wanted to be wearing. I mean, personally, even like it, they all had to be stencils. They couldn't have shading the nature of how the product works. So we were very limited to the types of artists we could work with and frankly, how cool it could be. Um, so 
we went back to the drawing board, brought in a world-class consultant. I think that's an important point there is we started with the best expertise possible initially here. Um, with the new product, we didn't try to do it ourselves. We just brought in experts, uh, built a 12-person R&D team up under this person who kind of just set it up and then um, stepped back. And then we had a team uh, basically run the process and uh, spent about a year and a half uh, taking uh, this product from ideation to uh, validation, um, functionally speaking, to, uh, yeah, to be able to manufacture this at scale, you know, to produce hundreds of thousands of these a month um, in our own facilities with a custom supply chain and manufacturing line. Um, and that actually took the longest, was actually figure out how to build this at scale cost efficiently. Um, and yeah, it was a success. I mean, uh, the new product is, is even better than we imagined it could have been. Um, it increased our NPS by like 600%, which sounds ridiculous, but that's how lower NPS was before. Um, so yeah, it really increased our NPS. Uh, obviously, repeats went up about 40% as well. Uh, and yeah, just change the nature of the business. I mean, the types of artists we have on the platform now are, are far, I wouldn't say superior, sorry. Their artwork is far more detailed and, um, I don't know, just visually compelling than what we had before. And, uh, just gives us a lot more room to move in different directions and, uh, create tattoos for, and different styles of tattoos for any type of individual that, that might want something particularly unique. So. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. It just gives you a lot more flexibility. As you say, a lot more details in terms of, in terms of what tattoos can do. Did this, now, did this affect um, prices going forward for, for tattoos for folks? No. So we kept our prices uh, the same, essentially. Um, we didn't, we felt like our pricing was, was pretty fair, um, that you know, consumers were accepting of it. And so we kept it roughly the same. And Frankly, we didn't want that to invalidate any of the data around NPS uh, or, or repeats or anything like that. Uh, we wanted to do a one-to-one -one match, um, like multivariate testing on the product, core product itself, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's risky. It was risky, like 2.5 million over a year and a half in developing this core product and really holding back on scaling as a venture-backed company until we had that product released was challenging from a, an investor relations perspective as well, right? Um, our burn was high because not only were we manufacturing this new product, developing this new product and buying all the machinery and tooling everything for and buying the initial inventory and training new staff on it, but we were also selling our ver current version or at the time our current version of the product with its own manufacturing line, the same spot with its own staff. So our burn for couple months there it was quite high um, as we kind of transitioned everything over and if it didn't work I mean it would have been very um, I don't know you're you're creating a product that is developing um, an ink into the skin and then changing the skin's color um, and it's the skin is a very highly variable surface everyone's skin is different and in our testing actually what took a long time was creating a product that worked well on everyone you know, we had certain ver variations of it that worked well in a certain amount of people, um, but not others. And we couldn't actually tell why because the skin's so complex. So we just had to test a bunch of different uh, variables and versions and then find the one that had the best data. Uh, and that was the, the version essentially we went with. Um, and it was a mix of like ink, materials, how it was printed. Like there's a, there a bunch of different variables in there. So there's a lot of data to sort through, but 
we figured it out and, and launched a product that worked for the greatest amount of people. And, and that's always risky too, right? Because you don't know how climate at scale affects it. You don't know how shipping this thing across the world affects it. You know, we did tests, but you still can't know at scale. So um, it was pretty stressful the first month of having it out there. But very quickly, we saw the NPS go way up, uh, way up. Um, and their customer reviews coming in saying it was much, much better. So um, then we always had that conviction when we were developing it too. Like as we were seeing the data, like, you know, data tells one story, but you're just, your gut tells you something, um, I don't want to say else, but it, it adds more, uh, more to the, the information pool. And as long as those aligned, um, you know, we felt very good and very confident in, in releasing something that had still some uncertainty to it at the time. It makes sense. And, and, and that's something we, we spoke about before. What was interesting about the re- investor relations during that period, you just raise money to scale, but you want to focus on, you know, your new product. Now, when you were fundraising, was your initial intention to use the money to scale? Yeah. So we thought we could balance it. We thought we could achieve growth and have the new product being developed at the same time. And we, I mean, we grew obviously, but like there was a certain point where we're like, this isn't working. Like we shouldn't keep pushing anymore because we can only reach customers for the first time once. And if this is their experience of the product, I mean, it's just not worth it. So we, we, we were very intentional about pulling back and not growing anymore until we had that new one um, in place, the new supply chain in place. And that was the difficult conversation to have, but our, our board and our board was in agreement. I think they, um, they, there was obviously some hesitation and some reservations, but they, I think they, they really understood. And that's great how it worked out. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, COVID. Of course, it's very, very top of mind, but just wondering how COVID affected, has affected in, uh, Inkbox and if your strategy is, has changed as a result. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple different ways to frame that conversation. Obviously, it's changed a lot. Um, you know, there's the internal company workforce angle. There's the consumer angle. There's the artist angle. Um, I could dive into all three very quickly. The artist angle I've already talked about with our supporting artist program, tattoo shops are closed around the world. Actually, start they're starting to open up now. Um, we'll see how long that lasts if they start closing down again. I'm not sure. They're pretty sterile places, so I, I hope they'll, they'll remain open. Um, but artists weren't obviously earning income, and so we wanted to support them. And uh, we we actually own, we have our own tattoo shop here in Toronto as well, and so we were impacted personally by it. And the artists who work with us were impacted personally. We saw it firsthand. Um, I think that was an important point of building that empathy with other artists being like, shit, like we're going through the same thing. I mean, albeit we have this other business that's fine, but like we have artists in our roster who like aren't able to ply their trade right now. And so we wanted to create this program that could support them and just allow them uh, an avenue to avenue to um, just promote their artwork too. Right. And, and still have a, a share of, of the conversation um, on social media. So that was with the artist side, how COVID's impacted us. On the, the consumer side, um, <laughs> it's been funny watching commercials and it's like, we're all in this together. And at this bank, we care about, you know, supporting you through these troubling times. Like they're all the same kind of tone and it kind of feels like you're being talked down to. And so we thought, I mean, everyone hears enough about all the bad news was going on, like it, really bad for your mental health. And Inkbox being a, a product that supports people's mental health, um, not everyone, but you know, certain, probably 20% of our audience. Um, we wanted to lean into that angle of the product. And we did it, 
I wouldn't say we did it on the nose. We did it quite subtly. Um, we just shifted a lot of our messaging to focus on three things. Um, the fun of Inkbox, the fact that like you're at home, you're bored. This is fun. It's just fun to do. Um, the family angle, it's fun to do with family and like people at home too, like everyone getting tattoos together. It's just like a really fun social activity to do with your family. And it's, you know, safe for the whole family too. Um, and there's designs for everyone. And three, uh, I guess there's, there's four. Three is creativity as well. Um, it kind of goes hand in hand with the fun of it. Um, and then, yeah, the, the last piece was, uh, was around mental health and, and releasing designs that spoke to loneliness or dealing with loneliness, um, dealing with depression um, in, in ways that were very positive. Um, so uh, releasing designs that, um, you know, just had words of positive affirmation on them, uh, which sell very well uh, for us. And, and we always hear stories about customers wearing them to just kind of help them. Um, so I think, yeah, we leaned in subtly, um, to just shifting our messaging to consumers without being on the nose about like how we're responding to this. And we never sent a dedicated email. Like we, we did speak about it, but it was always in the footer of an email. Um, and it, you know, in, in the third piece internally, how it affected our business, uh, in a couple different ways, obviously supply chains were a challenging, we got through it all. Uh, we just had hiccups and delays, uh, because all our products are, medical grade. So we work with medical grade suppliers who are obviously producing things for the medical world, which obviously is inundated right now with, with everything. The, the, the biggest, the, the two biggest changes were one, which I think more unique to us, which was the PPE side of things. Um, the way we manufactured the old version of our product um, was with laser cutters and we still had a lot of them sitting around. We just kept them in case we wanted to use them again. And I'm glad we did because we also had a lot of plastic sitting around just happened to be the type of plastic that um, you would make a face shield with. And we needed to order some more materials, but for the most part, we had a lot of the materials and, and supply chain in place to already manufacture PPE, uh, particularly face shields. Um, so we've been making thousands of them, uh, donating to local hospitals, um, grocery stores, uh, and a slew of smaller businesses too who just don't have access to face shields or anyone who, who knows how to get them. Um, so customers are, are, we've sorry, encouraged our employees and, and friends of our employees to, um, yeah, just reach out to their, their networks and they just put a form out there. Like if you need some face shields for like a long-term care facility, for example, that your mother's in, hit us up and we'll provide them for you for free. Um, so, uh, we've shifted to manufacturing PPE, our R and D team for about a month. Stop focusing on any of our core products and focus on the development of PPE. So we designed our own face shield that we can manufacture at scale. Um, and then the, the last piece here around how it's changed our internal workforce and how we work internally is around, it's just around working from home. Um, and this is what everyone's going through right now, how you deal with that for us, you know, it's just, everyone's adapted. Um, Canada, Toronto, we sheltered in place, but at the same time as California, we got ahead of the curve. Um, we work from home immediately. We still manufacture a product, so we do have staff uh, in the office, but a very small amount. Obviously, we put every safety measure possible, partitions between every sta station, six feet apart, um, six feet apart, tape everywhere, <laughs> everyone wearing shields, masks, gloves, what have you, um, cleaning several times a day, professionally done, uh, just super sanitary, uh, and a max, a cap of people in the office at any given time. Which was which was fifteen. So, uh, yeah, and then working from home, just how do you 
how do you maintain all the same structures within a business working from home? Frankly, it was easy as hell. I don't, it was just, I don't know. We were, we were just like, instead of meeting in person, we met on Google Hangouts. Um, we we're already documenting everything. So we're just sharing the same documents, commenting on them. We have happy hours. Uh, we still have cultural events. I mean, it sucks that you can't have like parties or anything like that. Um, it definitely hurts the culture a little bit, but our team has adapted quite nicely and straight up, it's going to change how people work. Um, most of our staff, we surveyed them, want to still work from home after this, after the restrictions are lifted. Um, they want to come to the office once in a while, but for the most part, it feels like we're going to have a third of our staff in the office at any given time in for the foreseeable future. And we're even um, hearing from them who are looking to move out of the city now because it's cheaper and work remotely. So I think, I don't know, I, I, I think that's an interesting conversation to have around how this affects hiring, having more remote workers in a business dispersed across North America or even the world, and how this might lead to uh, young urbanites leaving the city center where they can't afford, especially in a city like Toronto or New York or uh SF specifically, where you can't afford to live um, downtown. It's really expensive. You can't buy a home. Um, so moving to a smaller city and working remotely and still earning the same income, but you know, a much more affordable area. So uh, I'm really curious to see what happens there. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of a conversation in terms of the remote work. I uh, I was talking to another founders that I'm, that I'm having on. Their company is based in Idaho. And I asked them if it's hard for hiring. And they said, actually, we're able to get a lot of great candidates to come out because they actually want to leave the cities anyway, um, like the New Yorks or the San Francisco's, just because it's so expensive. And you can have you know a nice living in a you know secondary or tertiary market where it's uh, cheaper. So it'll be interesting to see how remote work also shapes up post-COVID. What's one book that inspired you professionally and one book that inspired you personally? Okay, personally, and it's a little bit professionally as well, is uh, say this book called Endurance. Uh, what is, what's the exact title? Hold on, let me just Google what the exact title of the book. It's called Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage uh, by Alfred Lansing. So Shackleton was this explorer, kind of at the end of the explorer area, era in the early, tw- early 20th century, exploring one of the last unexplored places, which was the South Pole. They wanted to cross it by land, and their ship got moored in an ice sheet, and they had to basically escape um, the polar regions. <laughs> um, and he led this incredible journey through, like, open waters and fighting seals and polar bears and shit, like... Um, with a full crew and no one died. Like it's just this crazy, crazy journey and really shows true, true gritty leadership. Um, it's an incredible story. I'm a, I'm a sucker for adventure novels and specifically if they're, uh, if they're nonfiction. Um, so that, that, that's a fantastic book on just leadership, sacrifice, um, grit. Uh, and they just, I don't know, it's like just the age of exploring. I don't know. We don't get to see that or do that anymore. So unless it's space, which is cool. Um, and then business-wise, I think um, the you know good to great and built to last by Jim Collins uh, just inspired me to build a long-lasting company. Really helped me think through the brand, the company's vision, mission, brand architecture, company values. Uh, just getting a really good insight into you know not just being a fad, building something that has true value and true meaning, um, both to consumers and employees. That's, no, that's awesome. I don't think we've had, um, I have like a book list on the website and I don't think anyone's mentioned these three books. So this is great. Final question. What's one piece of advice that you have for folks looking to start a B2C type business? 
looking to start, there's two different angles here. One, if you're experienced, one, if you're not experienced. If you're not experienced, uh, find some people who are, who know what they're doing and talk to them and learn from them first. It's much easier when you have some sort of knowledge beforehand and you don't have to figure out everything yourself because people only have so much time for you, you're gonna have to figure a ton of shit out yourself anyways. Um, so you don't wanna to add to that. Um, so I would just find the right experts in that field, that particular industry you're going after uh, and learn from some experts there, people who've done it before um, or who are involved deeply in it and learn from them. Um, on uh, the other side, if you know what you're doing, and like, you know, you, you went to Wharton or something or Harvard and you're looking to start your first business or something and you're looking to validate a market. I'd say be very wary of doing something that's trendy, you know, that you read in an article, you know, like in an A16Z blog post or something about, you know, a new way consumers are behaving and trying to, um, you know, just shoehorn something into that. I feel like the best businesses still come from something that's real and tangible and that the founders are passionate about to some extent. Um, you saw like a company like Casper. I mean, they just got, that's not a, that is not a company that's built to last. I mean, credit to the team, obviously, for being the first mover there. But at the same time, like, it's not, I mean, they got crushed. They have so many competitors. It's not a real tangible thing. It's a brand. Um, and I think if I were to start a business again, knowing what I know now, I would, I would really create something that had tangible defensibility, um, and served a real purpose and a real functional and emotional need that wasn't just branded in a different way. Those are some great points. Really think about defensibility. Tyler, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate the questions and the diligence and uh, yeah, happy to share my, my thoughts. And I, I look forward to listening to the episode and, and listening to future ones as well. And there you have it. It was so wonderful chatting with Tyler about all things tattoos. And I really appreciate him taking the time. You can follow Tyler at Tyler underscore Hanley on Twitter. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.